Hello and welcome to Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing the Monday Thursday lectionary. Our lovely guests this week are the Reverend Canon Anna E. Rossi, who serves as Canon Precentor and Director of Interfaith Engagement at Grace Cathedral San Francisco. In this role, she stewards the community's liturgical and sacramental life, diocesan festivals, and occasions that gather community across confessional lines. The thoughtful Melinda Garza Moran, who is the vicar for St. Mark's Lutheran Church in Sioux Falls and a Master of Divinity student at Luther Seminary. She's seeking ordination in the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America for Word and Sacrament. She is a mom, nani, and passionate Latina who enjoys working with diverse communities and is committed to social justice and racial reconciliation. And last but not least, the Reverend Dr. Hilary Raining, who is the rector of St. Christopher's Church in Gladwin, Pennsylvania, and the creator of the Hive Online Spiritual and Wellness Digital Community. Additionally, Hilary is a beekeeper, yoga and meditation instructor, as well as a forest therapist. Welcome, friends. Thank you all for being guests on the podcast. Our listeners love you when you share your wisdom and stories and thoughts. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, Monday, Thursday, uh, Monday coming from mandatum, meaning mandate, uh, which is also like the beginning of the triduum. How would you describe the triduum to somebody who hasn't heard that before? This is one of my favorite things of the whole year, uh, mostly because when you think of the triduum, you, you have these classically three uh, three days worth of services and liturgies that have this start here in Monday, Thursday. They walk us through Good Friday. Uh, and then depending on your church, you might have a Holy Saturday service. And then you end with the the ancient Easter vigil. Each one of them is full of drama, full of uh, incredible depth of scripture choices, of liturgical pieces. You only get these times of year to walk us through what it would have been like for those final days of Jesus. And the best way I like to describe this for my parishioners um, is that these are really one liturgy put together over several days. Like the, the ending of each one of them is a very stark sort of ending where you just kind of process out so that you can process back in the next day, depending on what your your uh, services are like. And it, it really has that feel of being one solid experience that transports us back to these times walking with Christ and then propels us into the here and now and the future um, when we look towards the resurrection. It's, it's quite a mysterious journey to take, but we're asked to do it every year, and it's, it's transformative. Both the transformative part and the mystery of it, despite it's, it becomes familiar to us because it is repeated um, year by year. Um, you know, I, I'm really struck by the fact that in the midst of the Triduum liturgy, so from Monday, Thursday to Good Friday to the Easter Vigil, we don't have a dismissal until the end of the Easter Vigil. And that is such a critical part of um, an ordinary Sunday experience. Um, we say, no, you're actually, the work is not here in the church. It's out in the world. Go forth in, into the world rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. Um, we don't have that commission. And so I, I think in a lot of ways, um, the Triduum asks us to sit in the discomfort and the tension um, that is inherently present in those um, thin and mysterious days um, and to grapple with that as a way of moving through um, through the tomb and finding new birth in, in um, Easter life. Yeah. Um, I love that because I think that it helps us to remember that um, 
we're always, we're not journeying alone. So we're together in it as well. You know, as we're released or not really released, but as we go forth, um, we're together throughout this whole journey, you know, and each piece, each service is so wonderful because there's um, different parts, you know, in the Monday, Thursday, where we have, we're given the sustenance, this food to kind of prepare us for the day of, you know, we're all going to go through a time of trial. And so we're, we're still together along the whole way, even through the Easter vigil of that time of silence. Um, you know, some services, people pray throughout the night. And how wonderful that is, you know, we still have that communal peace as we look forward uh, to the resurrection. What liturgical suggestions do you have for this service? I know some people do foot washing. Some people do like the Last Supper type of thing. What all What all have you done or would like to do or try? I think some of that is so context specific. You know, um, I, I'm coming from a cathedral context where um, we expect a couple hundred people to be part of the celebration. And so um, we don't, for example, do an agape meal as part of our observance. But I think definitely foot washing is extraordinarily powerful. Um, we have a, a healthy group of folks who are preparing to be baptized and confirmed at the Easter Vigil. And so we make a specific outreach to them um, to participate in the foot washing and, and preferably first. Um, and, and that feels really rich. We've experimented over the years with a number of ways of concluding um, the Maundy Thursday service. And we know there's a stripping of the altar, but the prayer book is so spare in its instructions and guidance to us. Um, and so one of the things that we have done for the last several years is um, had our dean and bishop read portions of the farewell gospel from the so longer portion um, of that section of John's gospel as the altar is being stripped um, and before the choir chants Psalm 22. And that also just puts a slightly different hue on the action that's unfolding um, and has been rich for us. Foot washing um, has been what we've traditionally done in services that I've been in. Um, but I was speaking with a dear friend who's a UCC pastor and she um, mentioned a ministry in, down in Cincinnati um, where they actually went, and instead of doing foot washing, they went down into some of the areas in the city where they have a heavy um, um, population of people that are unhoused. And they didn't do foot washing, but they took with them uh, socks and new shoes. And nice. they actually, you know, you know, took it out of the church building and went down into the community and had somewhat of like a had church there, you know, and provided that practical need and that, you know, need that Jesus always did for folks. So I thought that was a wonderful idea and something that uh, I hope to be able to to maybe do with a congregation in the future. It's truly beautiful. Yeah, I love that. I'm, I'll take two of those and uh, say a few words about how we do it in our context. And then I'll also add one about when we don't do and, and why we don't. Um, so along with the foot washing and the foot piece that you mentioned, um, a few people in our community tend to do things like go into the Kensington area and we'll have foot clinics for people as well as part of the Monday, Thursday, since so many of those who live in um, unhoused situations, the, the feet really dictate the health of so much of the body. 
which is a beautiful image for sermons anyway, right? You know, to say why, mm. why Jesus so focuses here on this foot washing ritual. Yes, it has its roots in walking around in sandals all day in the, uh, the ancient Near East, but there's more to it here too, right? The fact that the, the foot is the home of, of the health and the body in, in many ways. But to, to build on that too, we do a stripping of the altar, as you, as you mentioned, um, as a way of concluding that service to prepare for the next leg, the next, uh, the next day with Good Friday. Um, our, the way our building is situated, it is a very simple, plain, uh, almost Quaker Palian type of look to it. <laughs> <laughs> very plain. And so for us to remove the very few things we even have to decorate makes an incredible statement. It just, it mm. really, you know, sometimes when you see a dog without its collar, it looks even more like it has no clothes on. It's like that with, with our altar space because it just looks so bare. And then we will slowly wash the altar itself, having stripped ourselves of our own liturgical vestments um, and very slowly prepare that as a, as a place for, uh, for Christ's body. Um, one thing we don't do, and one thing I would uh, commend people perhaps to rethink if they do it in their, their community, um, we will sometimes have an agape meal, but we definitely don't intentionally call it a Seder. We do not call it a Passover meal in particular, so as to not to appropriate that from the Jewish tradition. And I know a lot of communities who do engage in that and and want to do it for the right reasons, but I've heard from so many of my Jewish brothers and sisters who say that that actually uh, feels inappropriate to have it taken as a Christian into a Christian context. Um, so if that is something that your community is interested in, I would much more commend to you going to your local synagogue and uh, and talking to them about their rituals and maybe participating there rather than trying to take it out of its its context and appropriate it. Hmm. That feels like such an important piece of counsel for us to hold, not just on Maundy Thursday in particular, but throughout Holy Week in general, um, that um, bringing our own sort of nuanced sense of the relationship between um, the Christian tradition and its Jewish inheritance, and then Christian people and Jewish people today, and, and really what it what does it mean to love our neighbor? We, we were given this commandment, um, and it and it's um, it requires some pretty hefty work on our part um, to examine both our past and our present. Let's talk about Exodus a little bit. There's this is a pretty dark <laughs> a dark story. I mean, it's also a story of survival and you know, that Jesus saved the Israelites. What stands out for you in this story? One of the first things that that I have to notice um, about this is deliverance is in the beginning, right? This is the initiating story of the Hebrew people. Once we were slaves and, and now there is this journey to freedom, there is this sense of um, belonging to a God who was extraordinarily powerful and leads a whole body of people out of slavery. Um, so I think that is one part of it. And the other part of it, in a culture where we are so bound up in um, individualism, in my personal this, and my discernment, my path, etc., this is a corporate event. Mm. That's an inescapable reality when we, when we enter into the Exodus story. 
what stood out for me that, and I think I've, you know how you read something and it's like, that wasn't there before, you know? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And um, when it talked about the lamb getting uh, getting it on the 10th day, but then having it until the 14th day, and it really stood out that, um, so that lamb was there with them in that household or in that community, living with them together. So when you go to that time of when they were sacrificed, it wasn't just an animal that they went and just grabbed. They had been uh, nurturing it and taking care of it. And when I connect that to, um, you know, the Good Friday and Christ's sacrifice, he had been with the community, Mm. you know, in throughout the ministry and had been then, you know, with them in their homes and fellowship. And so that was something that really stood out for me when I read the text this time. That's beautiful. Yeah, I, I, I want to echo all of that and and really say how this this story calls us to think about the largeness of how in every way God wants us to know freedom and not just us personally, like all, all of God's children. Um, there's an incredible uh, sermon called, um, you know, the, the Egyptians on the shore. And this, this, it's a historical sermon that calls to question this kind of mid, midrash um, of this moment where the angels in heaven are rejoicing after, uh, after this Exodus moment, but the God cautions them and says, I'm, I'm not rejoicing simply just because, you know, I've delivered my people. I'm also crying today because others, other children of mine have been killed in this moment. Right. So I, Hmm. I think this, these stories call us to remind us that we are connected, that we are all God's children and that liberation is meant for all of us. And, and that, that piece can carry us through the entire Holy Week experience, I think, as, as to reframe this as to where God is calling us. I also think there's, there's a unique opportunity um, to hold this story and then have a conversation with it later at the Easter vigil, right? Like if you choose this particular piece in the vigil, it's like the, the one that's required for all of the choices you might do in the vigil. And it's not like we want to get to Easter yet. In fact, my one of my main things I always suggest to my students when I'm talking to them about sermon writing and Holy Week is don't don't bring us to Easter, uh, you know, too early. Walk us walk us through all of these pieces, but to remember that those two are going to have a conversation both at this moment in the story and then later in the story might be worth thinking about as you're preparing your sermons. I was thinking about this and wondering, like, are there metaphorical sheep that we sacrifice in our church or for this, or, or what are the metaphorical doors and lintels of today? What, what might those things be? So I'm going to pull on what Melinda was saying here. I, I think there's a, there's a preciousness that's implied in having lived with a, a lamb for a while, right? You know, that the, you know, especially in the intimate way that they are doing it, um, that, that says to us later on, uh, there's a preciousness to what Jesus is going to do. And then the preciousness of what we are asked to do with our lives uh, and to see that through line. I think what's so incredible about that piece is that when when Jesus turns over the uh, tables in the temple, one of the things he's rebelling against is how the temple system had taken these animals and started to make it a little bit too easy, right? You could go to Mm. the temple, you could purchase a beautiful lamb, they would walk it up to the sacrifice station, um, and then they would sometimes just rock it right back down and sell that lamb again and again, right? And, And gone was the 
connection that you are supposed to have with it. Right. So to your good point, you know, again and again, if we're actually going to make some sort of offering of our lives, it has to be a precious offering. It can't be just, you know, whatever is Mm. easy to get rid of. And so, so I think that's a metaphor for us to really chew on there. It feels to me like that is so much the um, metaphor that we need to hold in Monday Thursday. I mean, the, the uh, curators of the lectionary had a lot to choose from when they decided what would go in this lectionary. And what they give us is not Corpus Christi. They give us um, an interpretive lens through the lens of foot washing. Um, they talk about a salvific event or the, the beginning of a salvific event, really, in um, in Christian history, and so how we hold that, how what the what the sort of uh, lens of interpretation that we embrace, and is really important in that self offering. The only thing I thought about when I was thinking of the sheep that we sacrifice, I was thinking in the, um, as we're entering, even in the political scheme that's going to be happening with election year, um, mm. it feels like our children um, right now are in the forefront, um, where even, unfortunately, religious communities are using um protecting our children, whether it's related to trans trans children or, you know, our children at the borders, our children in our schools connected to gun violence, you know, and Mm. um, just how much they're being put up there and and, in a lot of ways in a way of being sacrificed, you know, on all different ends. And so that, that was the group that really came to my mind. What other parallels do you see between this story and what's happening today? Like you, um, Melinda, I, I really went to the situation at the border. Um, I, you know, I found myself reading the news this morning and the Supreme Court decision to um, allow the federal government to intervene in the way that the state of Texas is constructing um, borders and impediments to refugees. And, and simply that there, we lack that as a as an American culture, as a U.S. American culture, we lack that um, sense of unity in our shared fate. Um, And so, you know, there are ways in which, especially in a world of climate change, that that there's a bit of but before the grace of God go I that ought to be um, present in our hearts and minds when we think about what it might mean to be fleeing um, inhospitable and potentially violent circumstances and, um, and the hearts um, and minds of the folks of this nation are not turned towards that. And, and that is sort of our job as preachers. I would echo that tremendously. I um, I was thinking earlier this week uh, about the difference between God's vengeance and God's compassion. I think as Episcopalians, we don't talk a lot about the vengeance part about God. Uh, and, and maybe in some ways, that's for the best because as Paul says, uh, you know, God, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, right? So the the thing about it though, is that um, we try to take vengeance ourselves, like as, as, as though it's our job, right? Like we try to say mm. who should be uh, on, on what side of what border we should say who should be bombed. We, who gets uh, good water rights or not, right? Like we, we try to en- enact God's vengeance, but in fact, that's for God to do, right? That's, that is too big for humans to hold. And every time we try to do that, 
uh, we make a huge mess of it, a, a bloody mess of it. Instead, what is gifted to us, and this comes straight from an Exodus passage where God's uh, actual description is labeled uh, full of compassion and justice and mercy. And that word compassion uh, comes from this Hebrew root word that that is connected to the the word womb. You know, so that this compassion becomes like a mother's womb space, such that it is a, a literal part of God where we can grow and f- be fostering love into this world. And I think, you know, that's the part that we're allowed to hold on to. God wants us to take God's compassion, that first quality of God, and live that into the world. And every time I, I turn on the news right now, I'm seeing a lot more people trying to, to hold on to vengeance, which is for God, not for us to figure out but very rarely turning to that that womb-like compassion that could off, actually foster growth and change. And what would this world be like if we actually did that instead of trying to be mediating God's vengeance, hmm. which is already wrapped up in his in God's compassion anyway, right? So, <laughs> so. And, and that is so far from our consciousness that, that compassion and, and vengeance could be um, held jointly by the same loving and tender God. Yeah, I was just thinking, and how great if we could all have the blood on the doorposts and the tents, right? Because there's so much of this separation right now of, you know, them and us or, and however we line up and not just, you know, in, in, especially in the church world. And, you know, it's like, why can't we all have it, you know? what Egyptian families had the blood on their doorpost that day? Um, You know, how can we think broader with that? So let's shift from Exodus to the gospel. Whose hour has now come, if we were thinking of uh, it metaphorical today? The gospel of John is so powerful in its use of that phrase. You know, we hear throughout um, the book of signs, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then there are these these pivotal moments where um, where we know the time is nigh. And Jesus has such clarity about that for himself. Um, and so while some of our, our conversation here is really about the the outward turn, the the way that justice intersects with the scriptures, there is this part of that that is about human discernment, about waiting and reading the signs, about persistent interaction, um, and knowing that there will be a moment where God communicates clearly and that that is the moment for action, and that that Mm. action becomes very well formed um, because it's well discerned. You know, I think what's great about the question too, is I think all of the readings, especially on a night like this, encourage us to put ourselves in the story, right? We are asked liturgically and scripturally to to put ourselves there. And so in many ways, our hour has come as well, you know, to actually Mm. hear the call that we are supposed to now give our life to, to make this look more like heaven than hell. To, you know, I'm constantly struck with the idea that if I knew that this was my last night on earth, what would I do? I, you know, I'd probably, I'd probably hang out with friends. I'd probably do a lot of stuff. Jesus knew and he washed feet, right? Like he, he decided to, to spend it with his beloveds telling them what they needed to hear. And if, if that's how he spends his hour when it comes, 
Now, wh what am I supposed to do with these hours that have been gifted to me, knowing that the hour has come for me as well? And I think that's what we get encouraged to do with every step of that story. So that's why I love your question. It's an opportunity, too, for reconciliation with maybe with folks that we haven't engaged with or we never thought we would because mm. um, all partook. You know, he washed everyone's feet and he gave all of them, you know, the communion, even the one who he knew, you know, wasn't fully clean, as he said to Peter. Um, and I think that's wonderful that in this time, if it was the last day, you know, um, what would we do? Yeah. I love this idea about, you know, in his last days, he washed the feet and it makes me think about a lot of our churches that are always worried about their survival. You know, they're on like church hospice, so to speak, that, you know, have like an ASA of 15 or whatever. It's like, that doesn't mean that they should stop doing the work, right? A lot of them, I think they get very insular and don't want to leave their buildings or whatever. Do you bring up this question about Judas? And I, I've always struggled with this. Here it says, you know, that the devil put something in Judas's heart. Does that, does Judas get off the hook? What, does Judas get a bad rap? What, what's the dish? I always feel for Judas and struggle a little bit with that. I have compassion. I've always had compassion and feelings like that with Judas too. Um, I feel that as we all do, there's a choice that we're able to make, but yet uh, the actions are definitely part of the story and part of what was, you know, going to happen. And so it's really hard Um and I have, I struggle and have the compassion because of the way his, his story kind of ends, at least, at least as how we're told, because we don't know what his conversation and what was in his heart uh, when the actions were taken. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. Getting off the hook, that's a hard one to, yeah. You know, I've always... Um... I've always been intrigued by that very question, you know, like, does this mean that that's something, you know, he's just a, a pawn in this, in this, you know, drama. But then I, then I remember how it is for me when I am clearly going uh, against what God might want and it's way better for what Hillary wants. And it looks like this, right. You know, it, it, it looks like whether or not I, I would say it's because a demon made me do it maybe or the, the devil made me do it. That's a different question, but uh, it looks like choices. It looks like steps along the way. Um, so I, uh, whether or not he gets off the hook, I also can't put him on my hook too too hard without also seeing myself in it uh, mm. and seeing the Judas within my own heart. Um, you know, I also think too, we have such an interesting contrast between Judas and Peter in this story, right? You know, Peter here also uh, denies Christ three times. <laughs> mm -hmm. It is a, it's a lot, you know, and, um, and does so almost face to face. Judas at least has the, uh, the good graces to kind of do it behind his back at first before he gives him the kiss. Right? <laughs> you know, there's this, there's this idea here that, that the, the main difference isn't that um, in some ways that Judas betrayed him. It's that Judas thought that was the end of the story, mm -hmm. right? You know, like, like the yeah. story can actually keep going. And we see that in Peter um, where, you know, when we do hear that, that resurrection story where they're back together um, and here's this guy who has the power to be risen from the dead. And the last thing I did was deny him. I'd be really scared if I were Peter, mm -hmm. I would be. Um, and instead they, they have a reconciliation. They have a, the first thing Jesus says is peace be with you. Right. So, so for us, I think 
I'm intrigued by Judas and by Peter because of the Judas and Peter that live within me so mm-hmm. that I can also then not lose hope um, that, 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 that this Hillary's mistakes, Hillary's sins are not the end of the story. And, and that I think is so, so powerful. Like this isn't the end of the story. Easter will be the end of the story. Right. And, um, and that's, that's, that's an important reminder. Your response has answered um, and illuminated so many things and um, knowing, knowing where the end is feels really important. Um, because so many of those things are walls that we put up ourselves. They're mm. not, um, they're not divinely ordained. You know, one of the most powerful moments I've ever had uh, on a on a pilgrimage was I was in the Holy Land and in the spot where it said that the the, the um, church where Peter's denial happened, right? And in this spot, there's this giant triptych, this beautiful triptych of Jesus's looking at Peter while he's making these denials and this heart-wrenching view of Peter like weeping afterwards. And the final one is the the resurrection experience where they're together again. And all around this chapel is the line from the creed in different languages, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, all Mm. around it. And it's just Mm. standing there feeling the, the weight of my sin, but also knowing what Peter must have, the anguish he must have felt and then like to, to have that be the end of the story, the, the forgiveness of sins and to believe it. Yeah. What a gift. What a gift to be able to have that. Where do we see examples of living out this Jesus's teaching in the foot washing in our lives or in our churches? I loved your story about passing out socks, Melinda. It, um, that story and also the question make me think of the work of the San Francisco night ministry. Um, mm. So it, founded by Lutherans and Episcopalians together, sort of in the heyday of that ecumenical fervor, but it's now an interfaith organization. Um, and they that is some of what they do. It's mostly a ministry of compassion. They walk the streets every night of the year. Um, but sometimes what they do is hand out socks. They have little things that they can give and socks are on that list. Um, and it just, it stands for me as a bit of a model as to how it is that we are with people who are on the margins. Um, There are so many, um, sometimes very good and sometimes well-intended traditions that we have about charity and about service, but the message of Jesus is really one of solidarity. Um, And so getting us out of our comfort zones and out of, um, in some of our more privileged contexts, that, that sense of, well, if I can give this, then that person will have something, but that we're not necessarily transformed by that giving. And so mm. really the call to solidarity that um, that places its demands on us. Yeah, I'll, I'll build on that. I think that's right on. Uh, the I think it also uh, demands us a level of vulnerability that most of the time people are far too removed from in their relationship with Jesus, with one another, or even the church, let alone the wider world, right? You know, so in my context, um, they had never done foot washing before I came. And uh, it took us a few years to make it a practice that they would embrace. Um, And for them, mostly it just felt so vulnerable to take Mm. off your shoes. It's a very intimate act, especially nowadays when this just doesn't happen in in polite society. I'm putting a lot of air quotes around that. Um, You know, to to take off your shoes and have somebody else wash your feet just seems like something you don't do. Uh, And so they 
learning to actually embrace that invitation to saying, no, God loves every part of you and every part of you can show up. Like I've, I've noticed that has helped even in the church I serve at here. People cry more often now in church, right? Like they, they, they almost as though they have permission to do that. Like we have healing mm. services that wouldn't have happened beforehand. There's something about the actual ritual act that you're so right, reminds us we're connected to one another, that we are supposed to have transformative service. And because we do this, because we follow the most vulnerable Christ that there could ever possibly be, and to actually embrace that and to go for it. It's very countercultural. How brave of you to have brought that into the context of, I mean, I'm sure that was not, I'm sure that took some navigating and some negotiation. It did. If anybody wants some tips on how to do it, my best tip is um, try to have it, have a group of kids willing to do it first and the adults mm. tend to follow uh, because there's something about the innocence and the delight to, that kids sometimes have um, that, that gives adults permission um, or maybe even uh uh, says, well, if the kids are doing, maybe I should do it too, sort of mentality. Uh, so that's that's my best uh, user's hack for helping to get this started in your church. Melinda, what's it like in your context? Oh, it's it's one it's interesting. I've only been here since August, but one of the things uh, they're a great congregation. Um, one of the things, though, about an individual at the church that I thought about her when I was reading the text on Monday Thursday was more. Um, not on the foot washing, but more of the serving of the communion. And so we have this wonderful um, little girl who is in preschool and our children's ministry has really grown. And part of it is because she has been inviting people at her preschool to come to church and nice. telling them about her wonderful church. And then when they come at the end of service, she goes around and gives them little packs of Smarties. And I just thought, what a way of just kind of, you know, filling a practical need. And here's this little evangelist where um, as adults, sometimes we have a hard time, you know, inviting somebody or sharing or being comfortable with foot washing or, you know, anything like that. And so it's pretty cool to see uh, somebody so small, you know, and just sharing that. Yeah. I've talked about this before, but I think also the link, at least for those of us in communities that are deeply affected by diabetes, the link between diabetes and foot care and how I'm wondering if I could see on some of the reservations, if we tied it to some sort of Indian health service clinic, like if there was like a way that we could link, like in Thursday morning, you go and get your feet looked at by the podiatrist and then like you can go to the service later that night or whatever. I don't know, but I could see some sort of connection connection there. What messages from this gospel and this the Jesus teaching here have, should we be paying more attention to or have we not paid enough attention to? I think the main thing for me is that um, everybody one, everyone was welcome to participate and no one was turned away, you know, and we can um, fall into these mindsets in the church where you only can participate in this certain thing if you've checked off all these boxes and done all these things and you're this certain kind of person. And that isn't what happened as far as we know. You know, everyone, um, Jesus was a servant to all of them. The meal was shared with everyone. Um, and it was a communal thing. So that's a big piece. Thinking about both the 
y'all come intimacy of the foot washing experience as as recorded in John's gospel. And then this conclusion that we get, which is, you know, where I am going, you cannot come. And how we're praying those in the same, you know, two minutes of proclamation. And so there is this way that um, the church is both about intimacy and estrangement, right? With um, within the church, in the church's relationship to Christ, and and um, in our individual membership um, in it, and um, and I think, you know, I think we have to wrestle with that. Um, the the places where that estrangement is mystery, where it's the condition for intimacy, where where it makes possible the fact that we're different, and that difference is clear in the gospel. But also the places where that where we are the cause of the estrangement, mm. um, and and where those pathways to reconciliation really do lie. Yeah, it's powerful. Both of both of those pieces that you both just mentioned. You know, I, to to the question of of what are we not paying attention to? I have to think. You know, first of all, it's called Ma- Monday Thursday, right? Mandate Thursday, and so the mandate to love one another. This new commandment. I imagine. We, we could not possibly hope to be fulfilling that commandment enough every single day in our life. That's probably the number one thing I'm not paying enough to uh, attention to uh, from Jesus. And, you know, it makes me think, um, what, would it, what would it take to be able to do that? And I start thinking about the way that I use my own free will for my own pride, for my own habits, my own choices, et cetera, and how, you know, all of us are given this gift of free will but how few of us have ever given it back. Mm. And the fact that, that we could, right. It's free will. We could do it. We could give it back. Maybe then we'd actually have a chance to, to, to fulfill this commandment. Maybe then we'd actually be able to not just say that's aspirational, but instead say, ah, this is what Jesus meant. He, he, he wasn't just, I think very rarely does Jesus ever give us just something to be aspirational. I think, I think he wants us not just to have like, a, oh, that would be nice. Maybe someday when I'm in heaven, I'll be able, no, I, <laughs> he, right. I think he gives us these things because he expects us, we can do it and, and, and wants us to do it. But it probably takes this huge relinquishing of our own desires, our own fears, our own anxieties, so that this free will we've been given is freely given back. That to me is where I'm I'm ignoring Christ more often than not and, and where I want to start paying attention more. Hmm. Yeah, and I think, and that um, connects back with your vulnerability piece you were talking about, Hillary, about allowing ourselves to be vulnerable, you know, coming in and just um, being present and being naked in a sense, just fully there. Yeah. And it, it goes back to how God's vulnerable, right? Like God gave us the free will so that we would all, we could choose to love, not because God could force us to love, but then of course that's not real love. That's just a robot, right? So the, the actual vulnerability of God saying, I, I hope you will love me too. I've given you the freedom to make that choice. Wow. Wow. Like, so, so it's that dance that we, we see in a God that comes and washes feet. Amen. I think sometimes we struggle with, uh, or at least I struggle with loving the neighbor that's different from me, especially if it's ideologically, right? I'm like, yes, of course I can love everybody as long as they think exactly like me and agree with me. And how do we, I think, how do we do that? That's the question I'm going to pose. What are some tools or techniques you have for really 
getting beyond or being able to stay in right relationship with somebody who fundamentally disagrees with you on maybe something that you are feel really strongly about? I think about times that I've done that well and times that I've done that very poorly. Right. <laughs> you know? um, so not, you know, I think, um, it feels to me like we have to go into those spaces like genuinely ready to not hold on to any of our own ideas, identities, stuff. Like it, it is the in the same way that Jesus can go, no, I, I know who I am. And so there's nothing that could ever happen to Jesus that would, would minimize his identity in any way. And, and we mere mortals don't always live with that kind of security. Um, and so it feels to me like, like there are a couple of things. Um, sometimes people ask questions that aren't real questions, but can become real questions. Like, hmm. you know, why do you Episcopalians ordain gay folk or what, tell me about this. And there, and it, it might start off with an agenda, but it, it might actually be a space where there is a narrow opening to have a real conversation in a way that in no way threatens my own um, identity. And, and I think being able to hold those spaces for people, not, not to open oneself up to abuse, but simply to say, I am, in the great big scheme of things, I'm okay. And I have enough space in me to let this person come a little closer on some dangerous territory than I you know, might have been in the past. I think that's very good, good advice. And I think one of the things you name in there is the value of curiosity in these sorts of conversations, like but honest, genuine curiosity of asking questions of each other to see where the common ground can be found. I think that's important. I'll say for myself, um, what has been most helpful, this is going to maybe sound old, old fashioned, but the most helpful thing for me has been when I've really had a hard time struggling to talk to a person or love a person, or I'm having these arguments with them in my mind is, is to first repent, like to, to go to confession. I, I know that sounds mm. like a strange place to start, um, except it's, except it's biblical, right? Like uh, every time God calls us to be able to do an act of service or make a change in our life or be open to receptive to the spirit, it often starts with a season of repentance or time in the wilderness of fasting or some sort of purgation type of, of, of tool so that we can see more clearly, right? Not only because we'll be able to see this, the, the log in our eye versus the splinter in somebody else's eye, but so that we can also say, when I do need to stand up and speak for justice and for truth, I'll be able to do it from a place of love and clarity rather than a place of my own agenda and, and my own certainty in myself, even if I know I'm right, <laughs> mm. which, which uh, you'd be surprised how often I know I am. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but at least I've started first in that place of humility so that, so that when I'm coming to talk to a person, it doesn't feel like I'm coming at them. It feels like I'm calling them in versus calling them out. And I find that mm. that has a lot more territory that can be covered rather than than me coming at you with Hillary's thought. Yeah, for me, it's been important to um, remember exactly being true to knowing who I am and naming that. Um, and then when I have the opportunity for those conversations, a lot of times I will go in prayer and just 
Say, God, you give me the words because I know if Melinda says something and starts talking, it's going to look a lot different than, you know, if I can be vulnerable to um, allow the spirit to move within, um, you know, to keep myself in, in check and to remember, you know, that that can be sacred ground. If we're, if we're vulnerable, these places, these conversations can be sacred ground. Um, and when I don't do that, um, I know there's been opportunity that's been missed. I always try and get people to tell me stories. I like, tell me a story about this, and then I'd want to hear like their story, and I try and have a story or an example, but that can sometimes help me to shift. That's so good. It goes back to that curiosity piece, right? Like, tell me why you're asking this or tell me why you think this way. Yeah. I love that. So what tips do you have for preaching this gospel or Monday, Thursday, whatever reading you're going to preach on? Well, two I've already mentioned that I think are just critical for, for all of the tritium tritium. Um, One, remember, don't get us to Easter too fast. I think that's just, I can't say it enough, but, but two, and the reason I say that is because you want these, these to really have the impact of being transported to what the import of all of these things are. And they are, there's enough here that you can contemplate this for the rest of your life. The the second piece is, um, you know, when, when you are picking which scripture you're going to read, go for a character, right? Pick, pick one of these personalities in the story. What I have found every year is that it's somebody different is calling to me each year to kind of explore Mm. them as a, almost like an avatar for entering into the story. Like what do you, what does it really feel? What, what's the full body sensory overload for this? What's, what would they have tasted, smelled, felt, you know, what would they, where would they have rushed to try to go and change if they could now, um, you know, to let that, person guide you into the story and it can be very rich and fulfilling as you're preparing your sermon that is um, such great counsel um kind of uh uh, in parallel to that sometimes i think about um our preaching is like finding a point on a prism um there sometimes it's about deciding you know there are 28 points on the prism and you're, you can't do all 28 justice. You can do one and that that will illuminate something. And that really gives a lot of room, especially, you know, if you're, if you're doing this year by year with a familiar congregation to really journey into some new crevices in the text um, and in the Holy Week story that, um, that, that helps bring it into deeper relationship with the community. I think my other piece of counsel is um, read Jewish criticism on the Hebrew Bible texts. Mm. We are so conditioned to read this as um, the Paschal mystery, as um, the Last Supper, as these particular events that are critical to our Christian self-understanding and story. Um, And we have a particular responsibility, I think, at this time, um, to make sure that we're deeply faithful to that Jewish inheritance by using that scholarship and by not not retrojecting our later Christian concerns into um, these these really um, pivotal and momentous texts. 
and I'll just add one thing to that extremely good bit of wisdom. Um, it's also, I think, really important to remember how much of this particular work, especially in the Gospel of John, has been used uh, by Christians for matters of anti-Semitism and violence. Mm-hmm. So to be able to make sure that your sermon can address that, that you're able to, 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 to say a word about that for corrective, we have uh, thousands of years worth of damage to try to undo. And so to, to not just let that hang out there is, I think, very important. Yeah. I would agree. I think it's important to speak on why they were doing it. It was during the Passover. And so what that meant uh, to the Jewish, to these people, what it meant to Jesus and who he was. Um, Because sometimes I think we forget that he was Jewish and that was so, Mm. you know, that's his identity and the beliefs and traditions and why all of this happening during that time, the important significance of it. Um, but doing it in a respectful way, you know, like Anna mentioned about speaking with people and scholars and looking at it through that lens. And then the message of um, servanthood and love, you know, bringing those back around um, is so important during this time. Yeah. Oh, so well said. My one last thing is, and as a liturgical nerd, the liturgies on these days are are, are just unparalleled in their mystery and their full body experience. When do you ever get to pay attention to your feet in a service, right? Like this is as, mm. and, and and so your sermon doesn't need to do all the work. Um, in, in fact, it often does less work than any other piece of these liturgical elements. So that being said, if you choose to preach on one of these liturgical elements, and I think it's a great idea to do so, um, do it in such a way though, that's embracing the mystery and the bodily experience of it. Um, don't just give them a, a sermon about the p- finer points of the liturgy. As much as that's fascinating to me, <laughs> this is this is a mystical moment, right? And don't don't miss it by getting caught up. I once had a really great uh, sermon teacher say, "Listen, after I gave a sermon on the Advent wreath, I know that's not what this is about today, but um, you know, she said, "Great, you never have to do that sermon ever again because I didn't <laughs> hear anything about like how this mist- you know, how this moves me. You know, it's it's great little interesting points. So use the liturgy to your advantage." But don't also get caught up in the academic piece of it. Um, as fascinating as it is, let the mystery speak. Mm-hmm. I love that. Thank you so much for being willing to be guests on the podcast. I really appreciate hearing your thoughts and your stories. And uh, it's great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, Anna, Melinda, and Hillary. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If you've gotten to know us by our love, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine. For 100 years, the generous donations of Episcopalians and supporters to the Good Friday offering have helped the Christian presence in the land of the Holy One to be a vital and effective force for peace and understanding among all of God's children. A lifeline of hope in times of genuine need in years past, the Good Friday offering continues to support churches, medical programs, and schools today. Now more than ever, we celebrate the centennial of this historic fund Your support is needed. Give online at iam.ec slash Good Friday Offering or text GFO 
A Good Friday offering, celebrating a century of gifts and rejoicing in 2,000 years of good news.